Well, if you have your Bibles open at Proverbs 11, that's where we're going to, to go. It could be really easy to be discouraged um, at the state of the world. It could be really easy uh, to be discouraged this week. This time next week we might be monumentally discouraged. Um, I was speaking to another minister and uh, he had an interesting complaint. He said that too many of his people um, are reading things like the Open Doors magazine um, or magazines from the Barnabas Fund or from Release International about persecuted Christians and reading stuff from the Christian Institute about persecuted Christians in Great Britain. And he says too many of them are reading this stuff and they're really gloomy and discouraged. Um, of course these things are useful but uh, they can cause us to lose sight of the fact that Jesus has already triumphed. He's not simply going to triumph in the future as if there's going to be some great battle and he's going to just about snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. Uh, He's already victorious. Majestically victorious. uh, Undeniably victorious. Uncontestably victorious. We need to remember that. And the king has triumphed and he has said, come onto my side. Come and follow me. Come and be part of my kingdom. The kingdom of God is near. Repent and believe the good news. Come, come. And we've come to him. And we are being called to live in the ways of the king, to walk in the king's good rules, uh, having been forgiven for breaking them, having been changed by the king's emissary, the Holy Spirit, so that we can walk in the king's ways and we are called to live, the Bible calls it, righteously. We can get discouraged doing that. And we want to look at uh, some verses from Proverbs 11 to encourage us to keep walking righteously. Now, what does walking righteously mean? Uh, well, it, it's not the righteousness that's spoken of in Proverbs. Proverbs is wisdom literature, and it's, it's concerned about how we live. And so righteousness is living God's way, visibly living God's way. Um, It's not just that once you become a Christian, you're instantly covered in the righteousness of Christ. And when God looks at you, he sees you perfect in righteousness. That's true, but that's not what Proverbs is interested in. Proverbs is interested in when the pagan person looks at you, what do they see? Do they see you living in Christ's ways, in God's ways? And so it's visible righteousness, or a visible living of a godly life. And Proverbs has a lot to say to encourage us. Um, Solomon is encouraging his son to work at righteousness. It may seem pointless. The wicked seem to flourish. Several of the Proverbs we read um, seem to be countering that idea. And uh, we're, we're told that the wicked, for example, in verse 18, earns deceptive wages. He earns wages. He gets wealthy. We're told earlier, um, he has his wealth and he has his power, but but it's going to come crashing down round him. Uh, and so um, we're going to look at this. I was simply going to look at verses 10 and 11, um, but as I started to look at it, I realized, hold on, there's so many more references to righteous or righteousness 
in the verses around it that we will we'll take in from 3 to 11. And there's three things that we're going to see. Uh, they're really obvious. Um, first of all, righteousness is beneficial to you now. Righteousness or living a visibly godly life is beneficial to you now. Sometimes you can think, what's the point? What's the point? I've lived for God and it has got me nowhere. Um, But we need to be reminded that it is beneficial now. Uh, Christianity isn't simply we go to heaven uh, when we die. It's a call to live in a wicked world God's way. And, And living God's way is our navigation system. It's our safety net. It's our safety rail in this world. And we don't want to lose confidence in living righteously. Verses 3 and 4 do something. And then 5 and 6 repeat it. Uh, verses 3 and 4. Verses 3 and 4 as we look at them. Tell us in verse 3 we're told that living right, or, sorry, righteousness has value for living. That's verse 3. Verse 4 tells us that righteousness has value for dying. And then so that we get the point, the next two verses repeat that pattern. Verse 5, righteousness has value for living. Verse 6, righteousness has value for dying. And we're going to think in this point about righteousness has value for living. It benefits you now. And there's two things that Solomon draws out in these verses First of all, righteousness guides you. Righteousness guides you. Verse 3, the first part of verse 3, the integrity of the upright guides them. You work hard at going God's way. You practice gentle speech. You work hard at honest words. You work hard at Dealing well and properly in a godly way in business. You've worked hard at that. That means when you come to tricky situations, you've already got the habit of doing things right. You've already got the habit of speaking in right ways. So that whenever you find yourself in perplexing circumstances, your instinctive reaction is to do what God's word says. And that is so valuable. Um, I'm reading through the life of Joseph at the minute. Uh, and I'm hopefully going to preach on it at some stage. And, but my temptation is this evening is to illustrate all of this from the life of Joseph. Because you know the story of Joseph. And he's a slave, a servant in Potiphar's house. And Potiphar's wife uh, takes a fancy to him. And Joseph is so trained in righteousness that although he's hundreds of miles from home, he seems to have been abandoned by God. Joseph's instinctive reaction is to run, get out of here. How could I do this, he says. And he gets out of there and she grabs his cloak and he runs on anyway. Uh, as, as one writer says, there was no yes in his no. Sometimes we say no, but there's, there's a hidden yes. But not with Joseph. His righteousness guided him and guided him straight out the door. Um, it straightened his paths. Verse 5. Verse 5 is the, the corresponding verse in the, the next pair. Um, the righteousness of the blameless makes a straight way for them. 
How do you know what's right? Well, verse 5 says, Picture someone who is unsure of what path to take. The paths all lie before them like uh, one of those mazes in a children's book and you're to try and find the way through it. And as you look at this and you look at it and you think, what am I to do in this situation? You know maybe not the third step or the fourth step to take, but you know the first one. I've got to obey God. I'll obey God. As you start down that, everything else starts to fall into place and to become clearer. Righteousness, living God's way, narrows our options. It helps us see the way ahead. And our job, remember, is to obey and not to worry about the consequences. That's, we're to focus on obeying God and leave the consequences in his hands. And if we seek to do what God says, and I'm not talking here about those you know, perplexing and uncertain circumstances where we're not sure, do I do this or do I do this? And neither of them seem to be wrong in God's eyes. And we're trying to weigh up between which is the wisest option. We're talking about circumstances that are difficult and, and pressure and they're a burden because we know that going one way will be easy, but it's not God's way. And going another way, um, oh, it seems so hard and, and complicated. And we don't know what way it'll work out. We can't see the end from the beginning. But we start out down God's paths, and he, we're told, will make our paths straight. It's a reminder to obey God and leave the consequences with him. And in the life of Joseph, we see Joseph's integrity. We see his integrity raises him to a position in Potiphar's household. Well, then it actually lands him in prison too. I think, oh dear, well, just there's <laughs> the path of righteousness isn't always a clear one. It isn't always an easy one. But what happens in prison? Joseph continues to live righteously. And what happens? He rises in, the position, in, the, in position in the prison. And then his righteousness leads him to the attention of Pharaoh. And he becomes Pharaoh's right-hand man. It made his paths harder, yes. But it made them straighter. Straight into prison, but straight out again. Um, His integrity uh, meant that there were decisions that he didn't have to make. They were made for him by God. And he stepped in God's footprints as it were and let God work out the direction and the route that that was going to go Um, so righteousness guides us we see it in the life of Daniel as Daniel and his friends take the first step of obedience Uh, and well this is what Nebuchadnezzar is saying this is what Darius is saying this is what Belshazzar is saying these are what these kings are saying but we're going to go God's way Who knows where it'll go, but we know it's the right thing to do. And going God's way guided them the whole way through. Peter and John are told by the chief priests, you need to be quiet and stop preaching the name of Jesus. They say, well, you might say that, but God says this. And we're going to do it. Haven't a clue where it's going to go. But righteousness guided them. They could have sat and worried and thought, right, 
We have got to think of the baby church. We have got to think of the Christians in Jerusalem. We have got to think that Jesus told us that we were to be his emissaries to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. We haven't got out of Jerusalem yet, right? We've got to find a way to get these religious leaders on side so that we don't get into trouble, so that we can do the mission. Nonsense. They didn't think about what came next. We've got to obey God rather than men. Righteousness. What's the right thing that God would have us do? Do the right thing and leave the outcome with God. Righteousness guides you. Also in this we see that righteousness guards us. Righteousness guards us. Uh, The second part of verse 3 tells us the flip side of the coin. The unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Um, The second half of verse 5, but the wicked are brought down by their own wickedness, destroyed by their duplicity. The word there is destroyed by their twistedness, by their perversity, um, by the fact that nothing's ever straight with them. Um, Righteousness guards us from that. Uh, Verse 5b, the wicked are brought down by their own wickedness. Verse 8 that we read echoes that the righteous man is rescued from trouble and it comes on the wicked instead. Think of the Egyptians. They broke their word. We will let you go. Oh, no, we'll not. We'll go after you. (laughs) You're trapped against the sea. Oh, no, you're going through the sea. We'll go after you. And they're gone. Their wickedness came back on their own heads. Um, Daniel, the plot against Daniel, the men who (coughs) conspired against Daniel. Their wickedness rebounded in their own heads. And they end up being thrown in uh, to the den of lions. Um, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. The men who threw them into the fiery furnace. They, they actually, the guards ended up being burned. But not Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Haman who erected gallows to have Mordecai executed. Ends up being hung on them himself. Haman who wanted all of Mordecai's people, the Jews exterminated, ends up having his own family exterminated. Um, Peter and John's jailers, or rather Peter's jailer, um, Peter's jailers are executed because Peter escapes. And the chapter in Acts that has Herod putting Peter in prison finishes with Herod dying a horrible death. Wickedness uh, bounces back and destroys those who indulge in it. And righteousness guards us from that. And righteousness guards us from tangling up and falling and tripping in our own lies, in our own deceitfulness, in our own trying to be one person to one person and something else to somebody else. Just play it God's way and be who we are. It keeps things simple. It guards us. And there's a contrast drawn in verse 3 between integrity and twistedness, duplicity. Between wholeness, what you see is what you get from the Christian. People know where they stand. And somebody who's all things to all men. And you don't know where you stand with them. Righteousness guards you. It sidesteps oceans of trouble. One writer Uh, summarizes these verses 
with the heading, Righteousness will see you through. It'll take care of you. Unrighteousness looks attractive and easy. It's hard to be different. It's hard to voice different opinions. And we do need to be wise. We do need to be wise in what we say and when we say it. But where our godliness is to be visible, it's hard and it's difficult. But we need to remember this, that righteousness will guard us. Um, Verse 6 speaks about the unfaithful are trapped by evil desires. That may mean in the future, in in the day of judgment, they're trapped by what uh, they've wished for. The idea here is their cravings and their lusts turn around and, and bite them. And we're saved from that as we seek but Jesus first. Um, we're not trapped. We're not captured. That's what the word uh, is used elsewhere in Scripture for an animal being ca- captured in a snare. We're not trapped by our desires. They, they, put it this way unrighteousness will capture you, but Christ will captivate you. One will capture you and destroy you. One will captivate you and delight you. One will bring death and the other will bring life. Here's encouragement from Solomon. Let righteousness guard you. We see people flailing around in in the mess that they've created. And our good God says to us, don't give up on living righteously. It will be to your benefit now. Secondly, righteousness is beneficial to you Later. Righteousness is beneficial to you later. This is the the second verse in the pair. We've got verse um, 3 and verse 5 are both saying the same things. Then verse uh, 4 and verse 6 are saying the same things. Verse 4. Wealth is worthless in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Verse 6. The righteousness of the upright delivers them. But the unfaithful are trapped by evil desires. Wealth that comes from unrighteousness makes life easy, doesn't it? But what use is it? Think of the parable Jesus tells of Lazarus and the rich man. And Lazarus is is living an eternal death in hell of thirst. And all the money he had can't buy him a drop of water. To moisten his parched lips. What use is it? Verse 7 speaks of power and um, uh, speaks of power and people. The wicked man dies, his hope perishes, all he expected from his power comes uh, to nothing. All his plans, rather, his plans and his power that seem so good come to nothing. But the righteous, righteousness delivers. That's what we see here. Righteousness delivers from death. Um, Righteousness has this incredible payback. Don't lose hope in it. Keep at it. Um, Verse 6. The righteousness of the upright delivers them. Solomon doesn't even bother changing. He just says it again. You know, a verse later so that we get it. What's he saying? Is he saying that if we live... 
a good life we'll get to heaven, that righteousness really delivers us and takes us to heaven. No, that's completely at odds with the rest of the Bible. In the Bible, righteousness flows out of a relationship with God. It doesn't make you right with God. It's because you are right with God. And as you live out your right relationship with God, that's proof that God has changed you and you are right with him. Verse 4 says, Wealth is worthless, but righteousness delivers. And the, the implication there isn't just, well, righteousness delivers, but righteousness is worth it. It's worth something on the day of wrath. Suddenly, on that day, the currency that you've been gathering and you've been hoarding, that the world has said, what are you collecting that for? What are you valuing that for? That's, that's worthless. That's pointless. That's, that's a waste of your time on that day. You will cash in, as it were, that currency. And God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. It won't be worthless. It'll have been worth it. You're one of Christ's people. You've valued the transformation Christ has brought to you. You've lived out that righteousness in daily life. And God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Righteousness is beneficial to you then. Beneficial to you now. It's beneficial to you then. And sometimes we can think, and I've said this quite a few times, I think, over the years, that we can think, well, they're so-and-so, and they say they're a Christian, and they try to fly below the radar, and they don't live out their Christianity, and they don't get any flack for being a Christian, and they're going to get to heaven the same as I am, and I'm here trying to live for Jesus, and I'm getting pummeled and battered from all angles. And it doesn't seem fair that we get the same reward. Well, first of all, we don't know that they'll get to heaven because Jesus says, those who are ashamed of me in this adulterous and sinful generation, I'll be ashamed of them at the coming of the Son of Man. So we don't want to be, we don't want to be in that place where we're not putting Christ first. But also we see in Jesus' parables, he says, those who have been faithful with little will receive much. Jesus is no fool. As you seek to live visibly for him, by being honest, by being gracious, by being patient, by being kind, by being loving, by standing up and speaking out as is appropriate for his values, he'll recognize that. Don't lose your nerve. Righteousness is beneficial to you. Not just now, but later. And then thirdly, Righteousness is beneficial to others. Righteousness is beneficial to others. Before we say that, just turn the well, Mike Bible. Let's turn the page, verse eighteen, um, just to back up from later on in the chapter what we've just said. The wicked man earns deceptive wages, but he who sows righteousness reaps a sure reward. There's the promise. Um, verse 20 there's the delight of God Um, so uh, but anyway thirdly righteousness is a benefit to others brings a benefit to others verses 10 and 11 look at verse 10 and 11 when the righteous prosper the city rejoices when the wicked perish there are shouts of joy 
Through the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted, but by the mouth of the wicked, it is destroyed. That seems hard to imagine. It seems as if the opposite is true. In the short term, certainly it looks as if the righteous and righteous people are the last thing the world wants. We're a painful reminder. We're a pain to people. They don't want things to be done right. They don't want us to stand for God's values. They don't want us to speak out about lies and corruption. They don't want us to be faithful in marriage because that's a rebuke to their unfaithfulness. They don't want us to be pure in our speech and in our humour because that seems as if, well, as they see it, we're judging them because they're uncomfortable with our holiness. But the verse says, when the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. We're used to our righteousness irritating people even if we're not irritating. Although there's a warning, we don't want to be irritating ourselves. We don't want to be annoying people. If, if godliness annoys them, well and good, but if we're just a pain in the neck, that's a different story. And some Christians are a pain in the neck and then they think they're being persecuted for righteousness sake. No, they're being persecuted for being a pain in the neck. I would persecute them um, if they were close enough. Um, But we don't want to be like that. We want to live such good lives that people appreciate who we are even though they disagree with what we believe. And that's what's promised here in the long term. And we need to keep our nerve and live for the long term. One writer says this, However drab, the world makes our righteousness out to be, it appreciates the blessing of it in public life. People know those they can turn to. They know those who keep their word. They know those whose life isn't a mess and whom they can turn to in trouble. They see it. And they they come to you for help. Uh, It may not be now, but it will be later. They see it. They, they, they know that whenever they're struggling and they can come to you and you will give good advice. They know that whenever they're looking for help that they can come to you and you will give it. They know that whenever um, there's some sort of circumstance that they're in and they need someone who is of absolute honesty, who can be trusted with either their finances or uh, their property, they will come to you. And they're right, or they, the city rejoices as they see the righteous prospering. And we need to be convinced of that. It's men and women who are convinced that living righteously that have impacted our godless world. Um, let me give you a whole list of examples just to, to let you see that. We'll start off with Joseph in Egypt. It was Joseph living righteously in Potiphar's house, then in the prison and in Pharaoh's palace that benefited not just Joseph himself, not just Egypt, but the whole of the Mediterranean world at that time. Christians in the first century transformed the culture. The culture was one where, well, if babies weren't wanted in Rome and in the Roman Empire, they were just cast aside. Um, 
in fact, killing a Roman, although it was uh, it was seen as murder. Um, the, the view in Rome was that killing your own children could be an act of beauty. And children were taken out, particularly f- uh, female children, infants were taken out, and they were exposed on a hillside and just left to die in the cold. And it was Christians going and rescuing those children that completely transformed that. It was Christians who brought an end to the gladiators. Um, in the 5th century, it was Christian missionaries who brought an end to cannibalism over the centuries in many different primitive societies. It was Christians who, whose activism brought an end to slavery. It was Christians who transformed the view of widowhood. Uh, a woman whose husband died in Greco-Roman culture had to marry within two years. Christians come along and say, no, 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 no. That doesn't have to happen. You're not be forced into marrying. We'll support you. We'll provide for you. You are of worth in yourself and not simply when you're attached to your husband. It was uh, Christianity that smashed the double standard of women were to be faithful and men could sleep around as they liked in the ancient world, in Rome and in Greece. They brought greater security and equality um, than the surrounding culture did. In India, it was Christians who brought an end to Indian widows being burned uh, whenever their husbands were being cremated. These women were burned alive. It was Christians who changed that. Um, it was, it's out of Christianity and its view that everyone's created in the image of God that human rights came. Other cultures weren't interested in human rights. Who cares? But it was Christianity that sparked it. Um, was Christianity that brought about the great um, charitable efforts that have marked, in a sense, the Western world and spreading across the whole world. Um, Prior to Jesus, the ancient world had very little trace of any organized charitable efforts. Christianity is famous for it. Whenever the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. I want to give you one more example, a fairly lengthy one from, um, man, I'm, I just like him, Matthew Paris. He's an, as far as I can see, he's a gay atheist who doesn't mind telling the truth. Whatever he's writing about, uh, he seems to just <coughs> say it like it is. Uh, and this was an article in the Times, um, I think it was 2012. Uh, he said, as an atheist, this is the title, as an atheist... I believe Africa needs God. He says, Before Christmas I returned after 45 years to the country as a boy I knew as Nyazaland. Today it's Malawi. And he was going out to look at um, a charity, not a Christian charity, but just a regular charity that was out there bringing water into villages. And he says, "It, It inspired me, renewing my flagging faith in development charities. But travelling in Malawi refreshed another belief too. One that I've been trying to banish all my life. But an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. He says, it, con- it confounds my ideological beliefs. Stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview. And has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. I'm a confirmed atheist. 
but I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes to Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of all other non-government organizations and government projects and international aid efforts, these alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity... This is an atheist. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. Then he says... Um, it's a long article and I'm only quoting bits of it, but he says, We had friends who were missionaries. And as a child, I often stayed with them. I also stayed alone with my little brother in a traditional rural African village. In the city, we had working for us Africans who had converted and were strong believers. The Christians were always different. Far from having a cowed, uh, sorry, far from having cowed or confined its converts, their faith appeared to have liberated them and relaxed them. He talked about Africans sort of in the, the village and you know they were sort of um, almost sort of eyes down and, and not looking the white man in the eye. Um, and he talks about these African Christians. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world, a directness in their dealings with others that seemed to be missing in traditional African life. They stood tall. This is a man who, who says, as an atheist, he says, I believe Africa needs God. If he had been Solomon, he would have said, when the righteous prosper, Africa rejoices. It's the same thing. Think what Letter Kenny would be like. Think what... Milford would be like, think what Convoy would be like as Christians grew in number and lived out their Christianity. Think of the decline in drugs being taken. Think of the decline in, in immorality. Think of the decline in violence. Think what a Saturday night that would look like in Letterkenny if there were more Christians about. Think of how business in the mart would be done perhaps on different principles. We need to keep our confidence. We need to recover and maintain our confidence that righteousness is good and not something to be done sort of behind closed doors or let's not stick our heads above the parapet. Jesus says, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven, we would like people who know us to say, you know, what she believes, what he believes, that bugs the life out of me. But boy, I'm glad I work with them. They're so decent. They're so good. I'm glad they're a neighbour. They're so helpful. I'm glad I study with them. I'm glad I go to school with them. I'm glad I'm at university with them. Because they're so good. They're so kind. They're so generous. Peter says in 1 Peter 2.12, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he comes. Imagine people, the day of judgment, saying to your father, It was good that I knew so and so. I count it a privilege to have known them. Your father turning to you going, 
Well done, good and faithful son, good and faithful daughter. Living righteously shows people that we're citizens of a different kingdom, that we're not subject to the values and rules of this world. We're a city set on a hill. Let's live to let our righteousness be seen, confident in the long term so that we'll live righteously in the short term. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that we have 2,000 years of history to look back over and see righteousness prospering this world. We know that we are at a point in history where our part of the world is thumbing its nose at righteousness and your ways. But help us not to lose confidence in living out our faith so that it can be seen, so that people can see who we are. Help us to have wisdom in doing that so that we're not being a pain in the neck. But help us to do it in such a way that even if the glare of holiness is painful to some, that they will enjoy the beauty of holiness and feel that in some ways they can't live with us, but they can't live without us. Father, we want to do this, not to pat ourselves on the back, but so that Christ is honoured, and that people will say, it was good for me to know these Christians. But more than that, that people will say, I want to be one of these Christians. Father, give us the confidence in what you're doing in the long term, to live for you, in the short term, day by day. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.